0: Turn with me in your Bibles to the 7th chapter of the Gospel according to John. And we're only going to be looking at verses 37 to 39 this morning. And you can find that on page 893 of the Pew Bible. And while you're turning there, let me just express uh, thanksgiving uh, for those who helped with uh, the Reformation Day activities last week. All the way from the men's breakfast on Saturday through the service and, and the picnic and the cleanup. Uh, all, of, all of your services, uh, for those of you who helped, were, were just a tremendous blessing uh, to this church body. And I especially want to thank Travis for setting up the Reformation, uh, all the Reformation display in the, in the Fellowship Hall and all of his artwork that uh, accompanies that. He's really been gifted by the Lord to remind us of God's providential... Uh, care for the church throughout history. And then I also want to say thanks to Justin Durst, Brian Walker, and Jonathan Watson for, for taking time out of their very, all three of them, very busy schedules uh, with work and new children and all kinds of things um, to, to, to prepare and then exhort us in treasuring the Word of God. I don't know if some of you who made the men's breakfast, that excludes the ladies, of course, but the men's breakfast... The uh, Brian's lesson in Sunday school and then, and then Jonathan's message on Sunday morning... ...all really tethered nicely together. Uh, and so, something that we did not plan, but the Spirit himself did uh, do. Uh, one of Jonathan's points last week was that the, the word of Christ... ...in the church reforms her fellowship. And my prayer is that the Lord would continue to do the same thing this morning as we look to the Word of Christ from John 7. So read with me now God's Word from John 7, beginning in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would come and and bless uh, this word... I pray that it would be implanted deeply into our hearts and that we would see that Jesus alone is the only one who can truly satisfy our souls because He, in Him, is, are all the, the fullness of blessings that then come to us as the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our hearts. And I pray that you would give us spiritual refreshment this morning from your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can see from verse 37, we are still with Jesus at the Feast of booths. Now, that's the Feast of booths, B-O-O-T-H-S. Not the Feast of Booze. V-O-Z-Z, right? We apparently had at least one misunderstanding about that a couple of weeks ago due to my my awesome pronunciation. Um, So, yeah, some of you are probably going like, well, of course they don't understand Jesus. It's a Feast of Booths, man. (laughs) So, having clarified that it is the Feast of Booths, Sunday Rutledge, we can move forward. <laughs> We're still with Jesus at the Feast of Booze, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay? Leviticus twenty-three tells us that this particular Jewish feast was to be held annually in the seventh month, just after they'd gathered. ...in all the produce of the land. And it was supposed to last eight days... ...from Sabbath to Sabbath. Okay? And during the... ...in, in, in between, in the seven days in between... ...these Sabbaths... Uh, ...they were supposed... ...the people were supposed to construct booze... ...from palm branches... ...and the boughs of very leafy trees... ...and then camp out in these booths ...all seven days. Now the Lord had a couple of purposes... For, for all this, one purpose was for the people to celebrate God's bountiful provision in the harvest that had just been gathered. Not the harvest gathered in the wilderness, all they're gathering there is manna, but the harvest in the promised land. They were to celebrate the harvest gathered. The other purpose was for the people to remember that God made them dwell in booths when he brought them out of the promised and when he brought them out of the land of Egypt the booze were supposed to represent their journey to the promised land this was a feast to commemorate God delivering them from the tyranny and the oppression in Egypt and bringing them into the land of abundant provision the feast was a regular way for all the families in Israel to celebrate God's bountiful provision and a time for the parents to teach their younger ch- their younger children about God's great Exodus deliverance. This is the feast John continues to highlight in his account of Jesus here in Jerusalem. He began chapter 7 in verse uh, w- 1 there telling us That uh, I'm sorry, verse 2, that the Feast of Booths was at hand. And then we followed Jesus up to the Feast in verse 10. We listened to Him teach in the middle of the Feast in verse 14. And now we're with Jesus on the last day of the Feast, the great day, verse 37 calls it, when Jesus cries out with some of the most profound words about God's bountiful provision. What Jesus wants these Jews to see in verse 39 in verse 38 and what john wants us to see in verse 39 is that all the anticipations about god's saving provision for israel have come to their fruition in jesus and his mission the feast of booths was not instituted simply to remind the people to look backward to god's provision throughout the wilderness and in, in the exodus deliverance and then the entry into the life of the Promised Land. The feast was also teaching the people to look forward, to look forward uh, to to the to the way that God would work again. The feast was was teaching was to be teaching the people and reminding them of the pattern of the way God works to save His people. And then this pattern of God's provision in the, wild, in, in the wilderness would then set the trajectory for how God would act in a greater way in the future as he delivered them finally and once and for all through a superior provision that was coming with the Messiah and his kingdom. So these patterns, as they're celebrating the feast, they're supposed to be urging the people to look forward as well as back. John has... Uh, has uh, done this several times already with with several of these Old Testament patterns in his gospel. Like the tabernacle, the Passover lamb, the Davidic king, the bronze serpent on the pole, or the manna from heaven. Each one of these patterns anticipated God's superior salvation coming with the Messiah and his kingdom. And then again and again John tells us that, all their, that these patterns find their ex- ultimate expression and fulfillment in the person and mission of Jesus Christ. So, for example, Jesus fulfills the tabernacle because he reveals the glory of God supremely in the tent of his flesh. When, when he comes from heaven and becomes a man. Jesus fulfills the Passover lamb because he provides total deliverance from ...eternal death, not just temporary relief from physical death. Jesus fulfills the anticipations of a superior Davidic king... ...whose universal rule defeats sin, death, and the devil... ...and ushers in the new wine of the kingdom that we saw in chapter 2. Jesus fulfills the pattern observed in the bronze serpent... ...being lifted up on the pole in the wilderness. Only Jesus' cross fully absorbs the sting of God's wrath in our place, something the bronze serpent could never do. Jesus fulfills what the heavenly manna anticipated, God's own Son coming down and giving His flesh for the life of the world, and not just for Israel. Again and again, John highlights how the Old Testament patterns of God's saving Acts find their goal in Jesus and His mission. So along the same lines, we should read this feast as we read the Gospel of John. I mean, why else would the people celebrate the Feast of Booze when they're already in the Promised Land? They're already there. What's the point? I mean, let's get the party going and it never ends. Why keep celebrating the Feast? Because the Promised Land wasn't all there is. The feasts were to be pointing the people to look to a much greater deliverance and final kingdom that God would bring through His Messiah. So along these same lines, Jesus stands up at a festival commemorating God's pattern of provision in the Exodus. Provision like God sustaining His people in the wilderness from a rock with water. And He says, If anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is again drawing off an Old Testament pattern that anticipated God's bountiful provision in the Messiah. And the pattern he has in mind here is God's provision of water to satisfy his people's thirst. And not merely satisfying their physical thirst but ultimately satisfying their spiritual thirst as well. That's apparent from Jesus' own words about the heart in verse 38. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The heart is Jesus' concern here. The heart is, as some have said, is the causal core of your personhood. The heart is... ...is what sways your entire being... ...to love this or that. The heart... ...is, is the seat of your affections... ...for what is good... ...or your affections for what, are, what is evil. If you transform a person's heart... ...you transform everything about that person. So Jesus' interests go well beyond... ...quenching our physical thirst. His interest lies in showing... ...these Jews where to find satisfaction... ...for their souls... He knows their story, after all. And he knows their attitudes toward him, even now, line up with that story really well. He knows that once Israel settled in the Promised Land, that they pushed aside the rock of their salvation. The scriptures tell us that throughout the Exodus deliverance, God made provision for them... ...by supernaturally causing water to gush from a flinty rock... The merciful and regular provision of water from the rock was so bound up with God's character in the wilderness... ...that the people referred to God and continue to refer to God throughout their history as the rock. The rock of their salvation. He is the one you cried out to in desperation. But once they reach the promised land, they're done with Him Again. Israel became so focused on their immediate needs... ...that they even reduced the God of the universe to a means to get what they want. As good materialists, they'd gotten what they really wanted. The land, prosperous, with all of its crops. And so they didn't see a great need to follow this rock of their salvation... Any longer they began to idolize their possessions and depend on their own strength to save them and forsake the only God who could save them. The result in Israel's story is that God removed his presence from Israel, made their land desolate and left their thirsty souls to shrivel up in Babylon just like he said he would if they forsook him. And so what we then find the prophets doing again and again and again in Scripture is pointing out that the reason the promised land is now desolate and thirsty is that the people sought spiritual refreshment and satisfaction from things that could never really provide it to begin with. And so God gave them over to their evil preferences. In fact, Jeremiah 2 even defines evil in these terms, in terms of people seeking satisfaction for their soul in things other than ...God. Jeremiah calls all of heaven to witness against Israel. He says this in Jeremiah 2, verses 12 and 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters... And hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. What is evil according to Jeremiah chapter 2? Evil is looking at the God of the universe who made you to be wholly satisfied with himself and with his infinite worth and beauty and saying, no thank you. No, thank you, I can find something better in Egypt. No, thank you, I can find something better in this little statue I made the other day. No, thank you, I can find something better in this dollar bill over here or this pornography website over there. No, thank you, I can find greater satisfaction in this job market over here or in this power trip over there or you fill in the blank. Throughout the prophets, this is why the promised land lays so desolate. This is why Israel, as a people, is so thirsty. Their hearts run to find satisfaction in everything else but their God. And for the most part, the hearts of these people in Israel shriveled up by pursuing those things in creation... ...which could never truly satisfy their souls like the Creator. Much like the problem that we all have that Paul says in Romans 1, when we exchange... The glory of the immortal God for images of man and beast and reptiles. Jesus knows this is still the condition in Israel. The story of Israel tells us that it's the condition, and Jesus knows that it's still the condition. They're not coming to their maker for. Satisfaction. They don't even know Him. John 1.10 says that, he, that Jesus was in the world and the world was made through Him and the world did not know Him. So Jesus cries out and invites them once again to find the life they've always needed with God. And He tells them to find it in Himself. What's even more, He tells them that should they come to him for true spiritual refreshment, then what their own scriptures, which they should have known, then their own, their own scriptures, their own scriptures would have, uh, whatever those, they promised, would actually be fulfilled. So if they came to Jesus, all of the anticipations that their scriptures had spoken about all along would be fulfilled. And let me give you a sampling of what Jesus means by that from a few Old Testament passages... ...where God's provision of water and the outpouring of His Spirit come together. So what I'm doing here is taking Jesus' assertion in verse 38... ...that the Scripture apparently said this, out of His heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John's statement in verse 39 that says, that was about the Spirit bringing those two things together. And they come together for us in several Old Testament passages. And, I, and I'm going to take you to a few of these because sometimes we're too quick, too quick to put meanings into things uh, like this, rivers of living water. We just come up, some, come up with all kinds of ethereal things and spiritual things and they you know publish books and stuff like that about them instead of putting the meaning that Jesus intended to be in there. As the scripture said. So the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, are to supply the meaning for what he has here to say about rivers of living water. So turn with me first to Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32. You can find that on page 593. Of the Pew Bible, if you're using one of those. Isaiah 32. And I'm going to start reading in verse 12, but this is, uh, this is just prior to them going into exile, this prophecy. And, just, and Isaiah has just finished calling the women of Israel to repentance and warning them of the desperation of the coming judgment. Verses 12 to 14 even, even picture the scene like this. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars, yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. They're to to beat their breasts, mourn over them because they're in desolation. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. So we got soils, full of thorns and briars, pleasant fields that are now deserted. They're facing a very barren and thirsty situation and they can do nothing within within themselves to change it. But in His mercy, God goes on and promises this in verse 15. Until... That's a beautiful word. If you're Israel. Until... the Spirit is poured upon us from on high... and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field... and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. That doesn't happen without a lot of water. And the effect... Oh, then justice will, will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. So what's the picture here? Exile for a little while, and then God pours out His Spirit... And does so in connection with the inbreaking of his bountiful kingdom. And the results are not just outward, a new land that's plentiful. The results are inward, righteousness, quietness, and trust in the Lord forever. When God moves, the results are stunning. Now turn with me to Isaiah 44. So kind of hold each one of these pictures in your mind... As we, ...as we go through them... ...and we'll make some comments about them in a minute. Isaiah 44. You find that on page 604. Again, I want you to pretend... ...that you've just learned from chapter 43... ...that sin has led to your utter destruction. And then God promises this. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant... "...Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants." They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's. And name himself by the name of Israel. The connection between the outpouring of water and the outpouring of God's Spirit is a bit clearer here. But the essential message is the same as that of Isaiah 32. God was promising a new work in Israel. A new work involving both outward and inward renewal. The outward renewal of the land and the inward renewal of people's hearts. The assumption is that without the coming of the Spirit of God, the people would remain corrupt and they would remain lifeless. Israel's greatest need was not merely a renewed land. They needed renewed hearts. They needed a spiritual restoration that would overcome the problem that brought about the exile to begin with. Namely, wayward hearts that love idols. When the Spirit came with the refreshing waters of of God's kingdom, the result is a new people who know the Lord... I think what uh, verse, verse, verse 5 is, is saying is that God even has Gentile nations in mind. The language here uh, lends itself to this. This one is crying out. And, and then this, this, one, this one over here is crying out, I am the Lord. And, th- and then this one over here. There's people from all over the place saying, I am the Lord. Why? Because God is working in the hearts of Jews and Gentiles to bring them to himself. So the result is as they're being gathered there is a new people who know the Lord. Let me point you to one more. Ezekiel 36. So three books over. Ezekiel 36. And if you're in the uh, five to seven year old Discipleship hour class, your memory verse last week came from this portion of Scripture. Isaiah thir- uh, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 36 and I'm going to start reading in verse 24. God promises this to His people. I mean this He's promising this to a people back in chapter 16 that He said in essence are spreading their legs to every passerby. That's how adulterous their hearts are towards the Lord. And God comes in and says this to them. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh... ...and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit... So now we got water going on and spirit again. I will put my spirit within you... ...and cause you to walk in my statutes... ...and be careful to obey my rules. So again, the message is very similar to that of Isaiah. The people are naturally unclean... ...because of their wayward hearts... ...and, and the, the, the idols that are hiding within those wayward hearts... ...and the only provision of God's life-giving spirit... ...only that provision will bring them true salvation. So what we're seeing... ...that's all of them... ...what we're seeing is that the outpouring of God's spirit... ...in association... ...with His bountiful kingdom being established on earth... ...is central to the hopes of the Old Testament prophecy. The prophets have taken God's provision of water in the wilderness... ...and associated it with a new and greater work of redemption... ...that God would achieve by sending His Spirit to transform His people... ...and give them new life in His final kingdom. And eventually... Some of these promises even reach their climax in texts like Ezekiel 47 and Zechariah 14, both of which point us to living waters. That actually uses that language. The living waters, same language you see in John, flowing from God's throne in the kingdom. Waters that give life to all the nations. When Jesus says, whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, what he means is that all the spiritual blessings of God's coming kingdom, it's righteousness, it's peace, it's quietness, it's bounty, it's abundant life, it's truth, it's riches, it's saturation with God's glorious presence, it's saturation with the knowledge of who he is and what he's like, All the spiritual blessings of God's coming kingdom are mediated to our innermost being by the Spirit of God. When you come to Jesus for spiritual drink, for a new heart, for new life, for inward refreshment of your soul, the Spirit mediates the blessings of the coming age to you. That's much of what John means by eternal life throughout his gospel. When we, a lot of times we think eternal life is just something future that we'll get later on after judgment. John, throughout his gospel, when, when he's referring to eternal life, basically in a nutshell, what he means is the Holy Spirit in us supplying us with the forever nourishing of unhindered fellowship with God that is characteristic of the age to come. When you come to Jesus, that life is yours, and it's yours now. You don't have to wait for that eternal life after judgment. You have it now, through faith in Jesus Christ. So you don't have to wait for the kingdom to have this eternal life, what's basically the equivalent of rivers of living water. ...coming out of your heart. But we need to be even clearer... ...about what it means to come to Jesus like this. And I am going to venture to say... ...in this text... ...that coming to Jesus... ...means that you come to Him... ...not merely as a sinner... ...who is desperately thirsty... ...though that is way true... ...but also as a sinner who is convinced that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so that you could drink forever from God's Spirit. That's how you come to Jesus. Convinced that He drank the full brunt of the cup of God's wrath so that you might forever enjoy drinking from God's Spirit. That's what this table is about this morning. I get this from verse 39. It says, Now this he said about the Spirit... ...whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given... ...because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now we'll have more opportunities to address what it means for the spirit to not yet be given all kinds of fun things to observe there but suffice it to say now say for now that it doesn't mean the spirit began working only after Jesus' resurrection but it does mean the work that he does after Jesus' resurrection is different and it is new and it is superior ...under the new covenant and the new creation that is coming. So we'll address some of that more when we get to chapters 14 to 16. What I want to focus on this morning is Jesus' glorification. When John refers to Jesus being glorified... ...he normally means one of two things. He either means that Jesus' glory is displayed through his death on the cross... It's displayed. It's put on display. that um, That is like the, the the glory of God's justice and the glory of God's love and the glory of God's grace and the glory of God's wrath and the glory of God's holiness and the glory of God's compassion and so on is all put on display most supremely when Jesus is under the wrath of God on the cross. So that's when... It's one thing John means when Jesus is glorified. He's displaying the glory of Jesus. Or, he means that Jesus is clothed with glory. Clothed with glory upon returning to his Father in heaven. When he humbled himself and became a man, left glory, suffered and died on a cross, was raised from the dead, then he goes back up To be with his Father and to gain, to be clothed with the glory he had with the Father before the world began. Okay? So you have Jesus displaying his glory on the cross or Jesus being clothed with glory upon returning to his Father in heaven. And based on the way Jesus lays the matters out in in chapters 14 to 16, I think John means that what, what he's referring to here is Jesus... Glorification to be with His Father, his, his being clothed with glory. That's when He sends the Spirit to do His new and superior work. But until then, He doesn't. But here's the thing. Even when John has one or the other in mind, as more of, the, as more of His gospel unfolds, the two types of glorification, His display and His being clothed with glory, actually come together as one. Thing one, there are two essential parts of the whole of the good news that Jesus, that John himself is preaching. Okay, and the effect here would be that the Spirit would not be sent by a risen Christ who had not died to save anybody. What would be the point in coming? What riches from the cross is the spirit going to play, to going to apply to anybody if Jesus hadn't actually died for them? But the fact is that Jesus did die for sinners. He did stand in their place beneath the wrath of God. He did rise from the dead and he was glorified to the right hand of the Father, and he did send the spirit to dwell in the hearts of everyone who comes to Jesus with confidence that he drank the cup of God's wrath in their place, so that they might drink from the blessings of his future kingdom enjoyed now through the spirit. So what does all this really mean? For us, The first thing it means is that anybody in this room... ...who is spiritually thirsty and destitute without God... ...can find true satisfaction for their soul... ...in Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus names one condition in this text... ...in which you must come to Him. And that is thirsty. Thirsty. Jesus puts no ethical... Uh, no, ...no ethnic... ...no social... No political, no economic, no familial, no religious, no works-based conditions on the one who can drink of his spirit. The only condition for receiving life-giving drink from Jesus is that you come to him thirsty. Anyone from the self-righteous Jewish people like Nicodemus... ...is the first guy that Jesus offered the new life to in John's Gospel... To the lawless Gentile types like the woman at the well, that's the next place he offered the spiritual life to. From classy businessmen types who think they're on top of the world to the poor and downcast who want nothing but escape from this world. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. It doesn't matter what kind of rotten person you are or how wayward your heart has strayed in loving what is evil, the invitation from Jesus is real and to all without distinction. Don't overlook the fact that the ones he is inviting to come to him are the ones he just called out that have murder in their heart for him. And he says, Come to me. Come to me, you murderer. And in me you will have life. If you're thirsty, then come and drink and you will know true inward transformation and satisfaction for your soul. Second, our passage means that when you come to Jesus trusting that his cross has removed every obstacle for you to gain life in the spirit. He promises you the spirit who gives you the life of his kingdom now. The kingdom itself is not now. It's future. But the abundant life characterizing that future kingdom is ours now when the Spirit takes up residence within us. This is kind of the already not yet dynamic of the New Testament. The kingdom is already here and present in Jesus and the Spirit, but not yet consummated in its full material sense of the word here on earth. So the kingdom's not now, it's future, but the abundant life characterizing that future kingdom can be present within us by the Spirit. Each morning we arise, the Spirit isn't frustrated by our thirsts, but has infinite supplies of grace and is glad to pour them out within us. He has infinite love to pour out within our hearts. Romans 5 says that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That's ongoing for the believer. It's just daily pouring out and reminding us of God's love for us at the cross. All the spiritual blessings of God's kingdom secured for us at Calvary minister to our weary souls, meeting the smallest of needs to the greatest. The Spirit has has nourished me in several ways this week. I'll mention three of them. When When my soul grew. Thirsty. And I'm going to start just with a small example. God is God is involved with the small things in our life. When I was a boy, uh, I'm still a boy, I guess. <laughs> when I was young, my dad used to uh, make us root beer floats. This was the treat, you know, like Friday night root beer floats. And uh, he still makes me root beer floats when I go home. But something I've enjoyed. Something I would also like to enjoy doing for all of our children. From time to time. But we've received news over time that's kind of unfolded that my middle son, Levi, has allergies of various sorts. You know, wheat, eggs, dairy, soy, sesame seed, catfish, now, and... A host of others. Corn. And uh, so in this late, we, we figured, okay, well, as he grows up, he'll just get grow out of these things and they'll get better. Well, we got a report from the allergist this week that said they're just kind of getting worse. So we're going to go see somebody about that. But one of the things that it kind of punched me is just Come on, God. I mean, am I ever going to get to enjoy giving this kid some things that I like, just like my dad got, enjoyed giving to me? I mean, I I want to do the same. Uh, And so I committed these things to prayer. And the Spirit nourished me in this way, by reminding me that I might never be able to enjoy giving my son a root beer float, as my dad enjoyed doing, but I can still give him Christ. Levi cannot develop an allergy to Jesus Christ. And more than that, Jesus will satisfy him infinitely better than any root beer float ever will. Jesus will become in him a well springing up to eternal life. Root beer floats can't do that. And it may sound kind of trite and trivial, but God is involved in the small things Another way is that both my hometown pastor, who's been supporting me throughout seminary and and everything else, um, had a very influential in my life early on, my Christian walk, and then Max Hotchendale's dad. Both of them, I found out, have severe cancer. And I was, of course, really saddened by this news. But I went to Jesus again for drink and he reminded me of Jesus' words in chapter 5. Do not marvel at this for an, for an hour is coming when, the dead, when, when those who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out and those who have done good to do the resurrection of life. Max's dad ...is even being nourished with the same living water. The doctors told Max's dad... ...that with respect to his brain tumor... ...the worst case scenario is death. To which Max's dad immediately replied... ...no, this is not the worst case scenario. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Death is entry into glory. That's what it looks like for the spirit... ...to take the life of the kingdom... And cause it to well up in our souls now, in this life. We're looking for the age to come when there will be no more thirst. And then, a third way I'm probably the most ignorant person when it comes to politics and our economy. So, don't send me any emails about that stuff. I have no idea. But occasionally, I'll ask the staff guys to brief me on it. Kevin and Gary. Used to be Dusty. And so this week, they briefed me on the whole Obamacare ordeal. Okay? And so, they give me a summary of what's at stake. And at one point that evening, I remember some worry began creeping in. I I mean, I I just didn't know what it was going to do in terms of church budget and didn't know what it was going to do for us and it's like I don't even have a clue where to begin putting my finger on how to work these things out and, that, and the spirit helped me to remember Psalm 33 he brings the counsel of the nations to nothing and frustrates the plans of the people and his counsel stands forever blessed is the one who takes refuge in him so interpret my interpretation ...of the Obamacare ordeal, according to that verse... ...is that God is frustrating our health care plans... ...so that we drink deeply from His primary care... ...and His everlasting security. So this is how the Spirit... ...nourishes us... ...with rivers of life. Third, and this stems from the previous application having the abundant life of the Spirit doesn't mean we are somehow transferred from a struggling faith to a purely triumphant faith. Some of you who have the Spirit might read a text like this, rivers of living water just bursting out of your soul. You might read a text like this and leave discouraged because you're not experiencing some sort of emotional high. And because the emotional high is missing, you'll, you'll be tempted to doubt whether you truly know the, these rivers of living water. But we should remember that even after Pentecost, Christians still struggled. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 that his various afflictions drove him to be so utterly burdened beyond his strength that he despaired even of life itself. And then he also exhorts the Thessalonian church to admonish the idol. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak and be patient with them all. Encourage the faint-hearted Christians exist. They need to be encouraged. Weak Christians need help. So even after Jesus pours out his spirit on the church... At Pentecost, it doesn't mean we won't struggle. Rather, it means that when we face all of our struggles in Christ, God provides a spring of life that will never run dry. No matter how low this world, the flesh, or the devil brings you, your union with Christ frees you to drink freely from the wells of salvation so that we might endure the difficulties and keep persevering till He returns to take us home. And all thirsts are removed forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Fourth, we shouldn't forget the corporate implications of this sort of spiritual life either. You see, unlike times past when God poured out His Spirit on a few select people in Israel, the prophets, priests, kings, to mediate God's blessings to the people, now God has poured out His Spirit on every one of His covenant people who submit themselves to Jesus Christ. Yes, we have our own distinct gifts, but all of us possess life in the Spirit. For those of us in Christ, God has made, all, God has made us all kingdom a kingdom of priests. ...filled with the Spirit to mediate God's spiritual blessings to one another. Moreover, when, fullness, when, the, when, when the fullness of the Spirit is in each of us... ...satisfying our souls, there's no need to oppress the others... ...so that they meet our needs. There's no need to drag other people down and heap things upon them. Serve me, serve me, serve me. Rather, the opposite is the case when we are full... Since God has met every need of ours in Christ and made our souls, our thirsty souls content with His Spirit, we are then freed and empowered to be the servants. To serve and to serve and to serve as He fills us with life and fullness. So we don't serve from emptiness, we serve from fullness. When you're satisfied with God, you're a servant. You're not a tyrant. Lastly, when rivers of living water fill our hearts, we will abound in mission to the world. I want to take you back to Isaiah and close here. Isaiah 12. This is just following chapter 11, which speaks of the Spirit of the Lord resting upon his Messiah when he comes to bring his kingdom to earth. And in that same day of Messiah's reign, Isaiah 12 says this, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. They're thinking about Babylon here. Coming out of Babylon, your anger turned away. That's just a, a type, a, another pattern that's actually pointing through to the day of the cross. Where Jesus himself will turn away God's anger from us forever. You will say, you were angry with me, your anger turned away. That you might comfort me, behold... God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. We've been on water. Look at this. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. The fullness of the Spirit dwelling in our hearts opens our mouths proclaim the excellencies of our Christ, who's given himself to turn God's anger away from us, and then rose from the dead to send us the Spirit that we might forever know God's presence. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you would continue to fill us with your Spirit. Luke tells us that We, being evil, if we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And we ask for Him to empower us and to fill us and to satisfy us through and through, that He would be uh, in us doing what we sang of earlier, swaying our whole being to follow You. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.